Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cinangeli. Andiamo avanti. What is going on, Renaissance people? I hope everyone had a restful and interesting winter holiday. As I've said before, now that we have a lot of momentum under our wings, I want to move forward in a steadier way with more clear, concise topics. There's a tendency to want to deal with history chronologically, and the chronology of our first season is absolutely out of order, which I can imagine makes it hard to follow at times. At the end of the last episode, I dropped a little hint that the next season will be dedicated to La Serenissima. For those of you who do not know, that's a nickname for the city of Venice. The most serene is what that means. I'll be doing an independent study on the history of Venetian Renaissance, so I'll be integrating that into the podcast and giving you guys the most concise look at the history of the Renaissance in Venice, which is really exciting. But we've spent a lot of time looking at the art and history of Florence, and it is there that I want to continue our focus today for what I'm calling this uh, interseason trilogy, right? Three episodes dedicated to the early part of the Florentine Renaissance that I've thus far left relatively untouched from the beginning of the Quattrocento, namely involving that oh-so-famous Dome of Florence and its architect, Filippo Brunelleschi. I want to contextualize him with not only some of his important contemporaries, namely today Lorenzo Ghiberti, but also those larger themes and figures that we have already talked about. And this is to establish for you guys a strong sense of a linear history of Florence in the most basic terms so that we can move on to Venice for season two. In this episode, we're going to discuss the state of the Florence Cathedral before the dome is designed, and Brunelleschi's early years, and his competition with Ghiberti. In part two, we'll talk specifically about the construction of the dome, and in part three, we'll focus on the other major architectural works of Brunelleschi. Okay? We ready? Let's go. I think we can say with some confidence that the cultural movements that gave rise to the Renaissance started and bloomed in Florence. Let's recall Renaissance humanism came in light of a strong cultural literary movement, namely from the major writers of the 1300s, Dante, Boccaccio, and Petrarch. Petrarch was the primary advocate for the revival of classical Latin, the language of the ancient Romans. This was the first major spark of the classical revival that helps define what the Renaissance is in our terms. Around the same time, Florence is experiencing a major economic expansion due to textile trade. Much of this is a result of Tuscany being rich in a mineral known as alum. Alum is used as a binder for pigments to textile materials. So in order to get vibrant colors to, to stick to the textile itself, alum is a necessary ingredient, and Florence was loaded with alum. With that resource readily available, 
Florence became the center in Europe for textile production and mercantilism. Keep in mind that we're coming out of the Middle Ages, where in many places a primary mark of status was the type and quantity of textiles that you wore, right? Location depending, of course. So what does this blossoming European capital need to consecrate itself as a new cultural and economic center of Europe? An absurdly humongous, jaw-dropping, never-before-seen cathedral, of course. Ideally, the largest dome structure on the entire planet. We have to imagine what building was like in this period. Building gigantic structures took a very long time, and was frankly dangerous and often experimental. That means accepting a design meant taking on certain safety and financial risks. We're talking about risking decades of construction that could result in the collapse of a structure if not done properly. And yet Florence was on the upswing and fully intended to show this in its city planning. The old church of Santa Reparata and the surrounding area was to be the site of the new cathedral that would be called Santa Maria del Fiore, Saint Mary of the Flower, the city of Florence being the city of flowers. Okay, do we see that? The beginning phase of this started in 1296 under the architect Arnolfo di Cambio, who also designed the seat of the new republic known today as the Palazzo Vecchio, the old palace, but it was not the old palace, of course, when it was first built. Um, And Arnolfo di Cambio also designed the gorgeous church of Santa Croce. Picture this, guys. The construction of the new church begins in 1296, The dome itself under Brunelleschi is not completed until 1436. That means start to finish, it took 140 years to build the Florence Cathedral. Keep in mind that construction was also interrupted by the onset of the Black Death, the the bubonic plague in the mid-14th century, which wiped out most of the Florentine population. Do we understand that? So it starts in 1296. The Black Death is about around 1350. So we're right in the middle of its construction. Do most people get wiped out? Okay. And while the Black Death is really an essential component of how we talk about the development of the Renaissance, because it's so central in terms of time, um, we're going to not deal with that in terms of Brunelleschi. Side note, the foundations of Santa Reparata, right, that church that was there before the Duomo today, um, they're still intact underneath the cathedral. And you can go underground and visit them if you're in Florence. I've done it, and it's very cool, and it helps you understand the massive upgrade in scale. Also, if you're visiting the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence, you can go under it to see the old Roman amphitheater when... Florence was once a Roman settlement. It had a Roman amphitheater, and that is uh, the site of the Palazzo Vecchio today. Those Roman foundations are underneath it being excavated, and you can go down there and visit those as well, and it's totally weird and awesome and fun. I want to clarify some terminology here, too. 
As far as we define Renaissance architecture, the most important Renaissance part of the structure is the dome itself. We also call the entire structure the Duomo. It would appear that Duomo is Italian for dome, but that would be incorrect. The word Duomo derives from the Latin domus, which simply means house. The Duomo is therefore the house of God, referring to the entire cathedral structure, not the dome itself, which is called the cupola. So I may use cupola and dome interchangeably to refer to the dome of the Duomo, which is the cathedral. Are you following me? Right, so Brunelleschi's dome is the cupola. Cupola is dome, Duomo refers to the structure. And now that you know that little uh, error, you will see it everywhere, okay? You're welcome. Back on track here. By the 1330s, the Wool Merchants Guild, the Arte della Lana, was responsible for overseeing the construction of the Duomo and the cupola, which had already undergone an additional size expansion. Okay, remember we're in a guild republic structure, where through textile production is a key export due to alum quantity in Tuscany, right? So another bit of language here, arte, where we derive the word art, refers to both the guild Right, The arte de la lana is the wool guild, but also a craft expertise of the guild. So in this period, the very word for art, as we understand it, is not one about creativity. Right, We talk about art for art's sake. But the expertise and labor, the business in the craft of the expert craftsman. That is their arte. Okay, does that make sense? also their guild. So what was decided is that the cathedral would have the widest and the highest dome in the world, striving towards and surpassing the dome engineering of the ancient Romans. Like Petrarch in writing, we are seeing a return to classical antiquity, but one that does not plan to merely reference it, but completely surpass it, outdo it. They decided to continue the construction without actually knowing how a dome of that size would be constructed, uh, constructed. But they felt secure in their ability to eventually figure it out. The dome as it stands today is a result of a somewhat unhinged genius of Filippo Brunelleschi. I want to step away from the actual design and construction of the dome. Again, we'll do that in part two. And I want to talk about Brunelleschi and his life and the critical events that led up to the conception of his dome design. So all this up till now is so that we really better understand the state of the the Duomo in Brunelleschi's time as a youth, right? But also that's going to help us understand how he turned from being a goldsmith to the marvel of an architect that we know him as today. So he was born around 1377 and he lived in the San Giovanni district of Florence, that very district where the cathedral was being built as he was growing up. Right? One can imagine living in the shadow of that structure, 
how a young mind could contemplate its construction, right? Seeing it going up step by step, understanding that there was no solution to the dome, looking at the mechanics that go into it. He saw this in his daily life. As he comes to mature, he begins undergoing training to be a goldsmith, which will make up the greater part of his early career. Yet, he had a habit of not being able to work well with others, being secretive, reclusive, untrusting, or arrogant. And while there are remarkable moments from his career that resulted from his goldsmith training, he really found his fame as an architect. This was the result of one of the most significant competitions in the history of Florence. In 1401, at the age of about 24, Uh, the announcement was made that there was going to be a competition to earn the commission for the bronze doors of the baptistry in front of the cathedral. Keep in mind our discussion about Florence, about the cult of saints, and that the patron saint of the city is St. John the Baptist, right? And the baptistry is located in front of the cathedral, and the district is called San Giovanni, St. John, after St. John the Baptist, and that is where Brunelleschi lived. Not at the time of the competition, but where he was raised. The building and the art that decorates it would make the career of whoever won the commission. The baptistry itself has three doors. Already was Andrea Pisano's pair of doors depicting the life of St. John the Baptist present on the structure. The other two entrances need a decoration of their own to match, representing the Old and the New Testaments. All this was happening while the Duke of Milan looked to conquer Florence, which ultimately failed due to him dying. But that's another history altogether. The competition rules were simple. Each competitor had to present a single bronze panel depicting an identical scene, the sacrifice of Isaac from the book of Genesis. They were given a full year to complete the tedious process of designing the panel in wax, molding it, finalizing design, pouring the bronze, all that and then at last presenting them to the judges. The history here is a little weird, so we're going to go over some 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 discrepancies. But what is absolutely unanimous was that Filippo Brunelleschi was a finalist in this competition, right next to the little-known sculptor at the time, Lorenzo Ghiberti, who uh, was one of the last two standing with Brunelleschi by the year 1402. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. 
What is unclear is who the judges ultimately decided won the competition. The first theory is that Ghiberti clearly was the sole victor. He accepted the commission and indeed designed and gilded the bronze doors and made his career doing so. This theory proposes that the judges unanimously declared Lorenzo Ghiberti the winner of the competition, beating Brunelleschi outright. They accepted his design is better, his motives better, okay, and that Brunelleschi lost the competition for the doors. The second theory, which comes from Brunelleschi's biography from the late 1400s after his death, indicates that given the youth and inexperience of both men, but impressive work, that the judges offered a joint commission for them to work on the doors together. But we know already that Brunelleschi doesn't work well with others, that he took this as an insult, that he refused. In any case, Ghiberti earned the commission for the bronze doors, and Brunelleschi left Florence in a rage for Rome. This is a dramatic person we're talking about, you guys. Um, so what do we believe? I don't know. Ghiberti got the commission. Ghiberti completed the commission. Was Brunelleschi offered work on it and got upset or offended because he didn't win outright? I don't know. Nobody knows. Okay. The good news is that the competition panels still exist and are on display in the Bargello Museum, in the same room as Donatello's David, at the very same museum as Michelangelo's Bacchus. In chronology, the competition panels come about 1402, roughly 30 years later as Donatello's David, then as late as 1490, uh, 1494, I think, actually, Michelangelo is sculpting the Bacchus. That places Ghiberti and Brunelleschi as the sculptors who set, in part, the models for visual references for later Renaissance artists. And I'll explain that. Naturally, we want to take a look at these panels and try to sort out for ourselves how their visual impact may or may not have won Ghiberti a full commission and to try to do this via assuming the position of a Quattrocento judge, because certainly our modern perception would yield very little. So, if you can, get these panels in front of you. If not, I will be as descriptive as possible. As per the competition guidelines, the panels represent the same moment in the Old Testament from the book of Genesis, the sacrifice of Isaac. For those of you unfamiliar... In brief, Abraham is commanded by God to show his devotion to him by sacrificing his only son, Isaac. Loving God that he is, he waits until the moment that Abraham is going to slash his son's throat to send an angel to stay his hand. Abraham's devotion thus manifested a ram to be sacrificed in place of Isaac. The reward was the eternal blessing of Abraham's offspring, given his extreme dedication to God, though I always find that to be a rather traumatic story rather than a heroic one. It is, however, a foundational story for Christianity and the subject of the panels given. Both panels have all of the same elements, but express the scene vastly differently. Differently. 
The shape is the same, it has to be. It's a diamond shape imposed on a quatrefoil. A quatrefoil looks like a four-leaf clover. They both include Abraham, Isaac, the angel, the altar, the ram, Abraham's donkey, and his two servants. Both undoubtedly directly quote sources from classical antiquity in almost all of their figures. While we do not know the exact guidelines of the competition, the similarities suggest that precise specifications were given to the competitors. It's curious. Were they instructed to reference classical sculpture? That would mean that the guilds were actively promoting classical reference in their commissions as early as 1401. Indeed, demanding it. The most important reference in Brunelleschi's panel is in the servant, who pulls a splinter from his foot. This is a direct reference to a sculpture called the Spinario. It's an ancient Roman sculpture of the exact same pose. It has several copies in museums all over the world, including the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Likewise, Isaac himself takes the pose of a prisoner in ancient Roman sculpture. I remember I was traveling in Tunisia, and I, I managed to get to the archaeology museum of Sousse, a city founded on a Roman one, and sure enough, I spotted a near-identical pose and a sculpted figure and immediately thought of Brunelleschi. I'm sure that's something that you can come across in any number of archaeology museums around the world. Um, I'll post that photo. I took a photo of it. I'll post it to the Instagram for your reference. Yet, that form in Brunelleschi's panel is scrawny, really, compared to Abraham, who seems to be kind of throttling him as the angel violently swoops down from the heaven and grabs Abraham's arm just as the knife is pressing against his own son's neck in that ancient Roman prisoner form. Ghiberti, however, presents a more idealized youth for his Isaac, exactly what we see in the classical Greek idealism that is picked up by the Romans. Guys, note this. While we said that Donatello's David was the first freestanding new to the Renaissance, in this relief panel, we see the very first idealized classical nude of the Renaissance by Ghiberti. It is a remarkable moment for the history of Western art. At the same time, Abraham has his knife drawn back, and the angel does not physically interrupt like in Brunelleschi's panel. As such, the moment of drama is suspended. The violence of these holy figures is subdued. And as the angel did not actually physically stop Abraham in Genesis, Ghiberti's panel is more biblically accurate. In total, Ghiberti has a more harmonized, less busy composition that's more legible and does not infringe on the religious doctrine by taking certain creative liberties, like Brunelleschi did. And, as far as technique is concerned, Ghiberti was smarter there, too. Coming back to their personalities, it seems evident that Ghiberti worked with multiple people, took advice, asked opinions, and was even willing to redesign and remold at the suggestion of other people based on what they got from his original, what would have been a wax model. 
Brunelleschi, as we said, kept his designs to himself, paranoid that he'd be copied, he didn't trust anyone, he was unmoving. Further, he cast his figures individually in solid bronze and attached them to the bronze panel. Right, Brunelleschi is doing a kind of a piece by piece in solid, heavy bronze on his panel. But when you compare that to Ghiberti, who cast the entire piece, all but one figure actually, as a single hollow bronze sculpture, what you end up with once you make several panels to cover two massive doors is a more stable, lighter, and more cost-effective mode of bronze casting, which of course is very appealing to the people paying for the materials, right? What seems clear to me is that Ghiberti worked smarter. He either won the commission as an individual or with Brunelleschi, who was absolutely disinterested in working with Ghiberti. Ghiberti, now with a very large sum of money in his workshop, took on the task of these doors, which was actually, in the end, altered to being um, representations of the New Testament, which would be the north doors of the baptistry. And he worked on that until 1424. That's more than 20 years he was gilding those doors. Brunelleschi, however, quite frankly, kind of over the, the disgrace that he was that he was given. He left Florence in all of his dramatic fervor, and he went to Rome. He'll be back and forth a little bit. We already see in his panel the clear ability to perceive and replicate classical forms. But the question of the Dome of Florence Cathedral was still unanswered when Brunelleschi left Florence, and he would soon be back with a solution. We're going to continue this discussion in the next episode and unpack how Brunelleschi became one of the greatest architects in the history of Western art and how his conception of the dome was not only informed by his stay in Rome, that ever-returning reference to classical antiquity, but also a complete product of his own time, one that looked not only to emulate the ancients, but to go beyond their abilities. Thank you all for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Leave the podcast a review, please. That helps build this community. It makes us stronger. It makes us better. I'm working hard to build it, and I hope we can all engage one another with our love of Italy, its art, its culture, and, of course, the history of the Renaissance. Until next time, arrivederci.